From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Anne Mossop. My name is Thortis Alba, and I'm a writer. I did not know what I wanted to be when I grew up, and to this day, I'm not sure what I want to be when I grow up, honestly. And the result of that is that I've dabbled with many professions, but the written word has always been my basis. It's what I come back to. Thordis Elva is a playwright, an author, and an activist from Iceland. She's also the survivor of a rape that happened when she was 16. She studied theatre in the US, became a playwright, and some years later mustered the courage to get in touch with the man who raped her. This initiated eight years of brutally honest emails between them, as he expressed his deep regret and Thordis looked for a way forward. Together they wrote the book South of Forgiveness, in which he takes responsibility for what he did 20 years ago, and they both tell their stories. Thordis, can we start off by finding out more about your childhood in Iceland and elsewhere? There was a lot of moving around for me. Uh, My father is a doctor and he was studying in various places. So by the age of five, I was already trilingual. We'd been living in the States as well as Sweden, as well as Iceland. So um, I guess in a way I was sort of a citizen of the world without even knowing when I was very young. And yet I had this, I guess, self-centered worldview that all children have to some extent where they think that the world kind of revolves around them. And I remember being convinced that, you know, the teacher lived in school because they were there when I came there and they were there when I left. So obviously that had to be their reality. Um, and the baker had to live in the bakery, obviously. And, you know, all these absolute truths that children are convinced of because obviously they are at the center of the universe. Um, so some of my early memories have to do with learning that the world isn't as absolute or black and white as I thought. I remember this one time, I was probably about five when I was asked what my mother's name was. And um, I'd never been in like a play school or like a daycare. So I was spent very much time alone with my mother. So I didn't have a lot of opportunities to hear how other people addressed her. So when I was asked what's her name, I was like, what do you mean? It's mom. (laughs) Of course, obviously. And when I was told, no, um, your mother has a name, honey. I was like, what is this? What is this uh, nonsense? And I went to my mom and I said, mom, I got the weirdest question today about your name. And uh, and my mom was like, well, I do have a name, honey. And I was like, what? What is this? What What is your name? And she goes, my name is Adalbjörk. And I'm like, what kind of a name is that? What are you, what's next? Are you going to tell me dad's name isn't dad? Like, seriously? Um... And yeah, so that was a big day of learning some of the memories of me coming into an awareness, basically. And a lot of that had to do with words. Like I'm describing now the word, the, my the mother's name. name. Yeah, the yeah. words and, um, and how they, the meaning that we attach to them. And as a wordsmith, as a person that uh, has writing as her medium, um, it's become even more significant for me. And so were you a reader and a writer when you were a kid? I was someone who wrote in a diary very religiously, um, and I I read a lot. I've come to realize now that I have children of my own just how weird I was as a kid myself. Uh, I was reading 
material that was well above my age. By the age of 10, I had like read most of the history that had to do with World War II. I had le- read a lot of autobiographies and I quoted something from Tina Turner's autobiography the other day. And my husband said, when did you read that? And I said, when it came out. And he's like, that came out in 1990. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> that makes me 10 when I read that. So yeah, I guess that's a bit of a testament to to me having interests that were maybe outside of my my age. I think it's interesting because it's also a feature of growing up at a time when books were a real source of information. Right. When you weren't didn't have a screen in your hands all exactly. the time. And no internet. To, no internet. And, to distract and I you. I certainly mm-hmm. think that uh, if you were a child, you didn't want boredom to be a feature of your childhood. There were all of these things like think, like reading or, or the kind of different kinds of things that you might have wanted to do. Part of the reason I know why I read was because, okay, what is there to do? I do think that boredom is necessary and underestimated. Yes. Yes. I think that boredom can be very stimulating. But you're absolutely right. And uh, books were a refuge for me. But, you know, the funny thing about that is I think it had more to do with the silence that comes with reading. Um, there's something about silence that was very nurturing for me as a child. It was like a blank canvas where I could unclutter my thoughts. I could let my imagination stretch its legs. I could digest information. So silence was a friend for me. And you're the middle child of three, but, but both of your siblings not close in, not that close in age. No. Um, my mom used to joke about it taking her eight years every time to muster the courage to have another child. But yeah, my sister's eight years older and my brother's eight years younger. So, um, did you play together when you were young? No, we didn't. The age bracket yeah, was it's too wide. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Like, like sort of sep- very much separate, separate ages mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you do think saying, saying that su- the books are a refuge in silence. You do imagine somebody trapped among. In a lot of noise, <laughs> right? A lot of noise. Well, I will say that we had a neighbor that had this neurotic dog that used to bark all the time. And my kid brother formed a rock band in our garage. And these two things did nothing but um, deepen my love for <laughs> silence. But uh, again, the written word and books are in a way a silent means of communicating. What sort of a teenager were you? Again, a very strange <laughs> kid. <laughs> no, but um, as a testament maybe to, to having different interests, um, at the age of 14, I taught myself how to read and write runes. Uh, that was like a of fourth course. language, <laughs> I suppose, in a way. But it was also a very convenient way to make my diary illegible to my younger brother, who is obviously capable of, of doing anything with that with regard to my privacy. Yeah, I was a late bloomer, kind of introverted. And um, when all my friends had fallen for at least one boy, I still found boys to be these primitive creatures with their sucker punches and their spitting contests and their pulling on your bra strap. And it simply did not really... They weren't interesting. No, (laughs) it really (laughs) didn't appeal to me. I really didn't get it. I'd rather read a book honestly, but Everything changed in 1996 when I was 16 in high school in Reykjavik. And this Australian exchange student, Tom, showed up at my school one day. And if we continue to talk about 
silence then for the first time in my life my silence was filled by the pounding of my own heart because it was it was the first love and it was a, a strong one at that and this is part of the the sadness of this story that that you tell in south of forgiveness that this was this was a first love but something that very quickly turned into something terrifying in the sense that the second date that you went on ended in in rape effectively mm. Yeah, well, it began as a typical teenage romance. We met at lunch breaks just to hold hands and gaze deeply into each other's eyes. And we took long walks and, you know, he met my family and it all felt very consensual and romantic and uh, in line with my ideas about love and trust. So uh, it was very much a budding first relationship. But that took an unexpected and very grim turn uh, on the night of the Christmas dance at my high school where I was kind of drunk on this newfound maturity of mine. So I felt it was only fitting to take yet another step into the realm of adult life by trying rum for the first time. And that was a terrible idea. And I became very ill. So I was drifting in and out of consciousness in the toilets uh, as opposed to being out on the dance floor with my friends. And I was vomiting convulsively and the whole situation was quite the mess. And I remember thinking to myself that I would probably be grounded for life when my mother would, would find this out. But um, I was unfortunately in completely incapacitated. Yeah. So I could not move a limb or utter a word, which is why I felt very relieved and grateful when Tom, this first boyfriend of mine, appeared sort of like a knight in shining armor to save me from this predicament. Uh, so those were the feelings, the feelings of gratitude and relief mm. when he um, carried me out of that building and got me in a taxi um, and denied the offer of medical assistance because people were worried. Yeah. I, I probably had alcohol poisoning in hindsight, yeah. Yeah. but it's always easy yeah. to be wise in hindsight. But yeah. anyway, um, yeah, and all of that took a, a very grim turn when we got to my place and he put me in my bed, undressed me and decided to have his way with me. And um, there I had to make a decision and it wasn't something conscious. It was more like a an automatic reflex to, to try and cope with the situation. So in order to bear not only the physical pain, mm. but also the immensity of this betrayal, I had to focus on something outside of myself and the way I was lying in bed um, because I couldn't shift or turn over what was in my line of sight happened to be the alarm clock that was on the nightstand and, and glowed in the dark. So what I did in order to kind of survive this was to count seconds mm. and I got up to 7,200 because it was a long ordeal, um, about two hours. And this started out as a lifeline for me, but it became nervous habit. And I found myself after this, this violence, filling my silence with seconds, with compulsive counting, with noise, because I was afraid of the story my silence would tell if I stopped. And this was something that you didn't then tell anyone about. You didn't tell your parents. I didn't. Um, first of all, I had very naive notions about rape and sexual violence. Um, I thought it was something that 
was perpetrated by an armed lunatic lurking in a park. Uh, certainly not something that was carried out by your own boyfriend and happened in your own bed. So by the time I had seen through these misconceptions, Tom was unfortunately already on the other side of the planet, uh, effectively as far away from the Icelandic police jurisdiction as you can be. And my physical injuries had healed by then. So unfortunately, pressing charges or taking formal action never would have been a, pro- a fruitful process mm. for me. However, um, my family did see that I was in pain uh, and they saw that there, there was suffering happening within me. But they thought because Tom broke up with me the day after this violent incident, they associated it with my first heartache. So they tried their best to be supportive, but, you know, they would pat me on the shoulder and say there are other fishes in the sea and not realize that I was going through something serious. Right. That I was going through something that was a whole lot more serious than what it appeared to be on the surface. And I have to also say another reason for why it took me a while to come around to the truth was um, that it was simply a really painful thing to face that the first time I gave my heart away, it resulted in this horrible abuse. So I guess a part of me wanted to protect my innocent ideas about love, about trust, about other people, about relationships. So it, it was a painful thing to let go of and to face what had actually happened. I can imagine because it's about a whole view of the world Mm -hmm. and yourself and other people. And, and I think, you know, it's very easy to see how dealing with that on your own at that age, that it would be a very, very difficult to deal with it in, in any kind of open way. You went on with your life. You finished school. You, I did. You went and studied in the States. You had this kind of pain and difficulty associated with that that sort of stayed with you but you went on to achieve extraordinary things you became a playwright you wrote a book about sexual violence in Iceland that even though some years passed before you got back in touch with Tom to start the process of him recognizing what had happened and the communication that you thought you needed to get through that period you had become this extraordinary person. What made you become a playwright? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I went to the States to study. I became an overachiever. I have to state that. Uh, It's partly because my fear of standing still, it invited too much self-reflection. It invited analysis of the past that I wasn't ready to undertake. So I filled my schedule round the clock, became an you know overachieving student. I was in all things extracurricular. I was on the student board. I was writing for the school paper. I had a part-time job and um, yeah, whipped myself to get only straight A's and, and outstanding achievements. And that's, that was a camouflage as well because nobody suspects someone uh, that has such such a All record of success to, to be incredibly broken and dysfunctional of a human being. So that's what I presented to the outside world. But on the inside, it was a lot of numbing. I struggled with self uh, harm. I struggled with eating disorders, uh, with alcohol. So it definitely came out in destructive ways. 
But I won a scholarship due to my outstanding academic achievements to go to the United States where I studied dramatic performance. Uh, and I realized about halfway through my studies that I would have more of an impact by telling the story that rather than interpreting it. So it got me fascinated with, with playwriting. You know, I had this compelling need to, to break the silence about all these social taboos that we have. Um, so I started writing plays and it was such a liberation for someone that was full of unspoken words. I was a deeply divided person who needed to give voice to a range of experiences, but buckled. But when I could write these characters that could give voice to all the things I couldn't say myself, it was it was freedom. It was a new sense of, of freedom for me. And you also wrote a book about sexual violence in Iceland, The Plain Truth. That was sparked by the judgment, most unsatisfactory judgment in a case of rape that set you on the course and, you know, that this sparked your thinking about it. Tell us about that, how that happened. As you m mentioned, I was a playwright at the time. I also had a, a magazine column. So writing was increasingly becoming um, my profession. But one day I remember I got the paper uh, sat down with my cup of coffee and I read the headline of the newspaper and I literally, my, my jaw literally dropped into my cappuccino. It was such a hefty reaction, but what it was about was a rape case that had taken place in, um, at a hotel where a 19 year old girl had asked for directions to the nearest bathroom and a stranger that had offered her assistance, um, then shoved her into one of the cubicles and forced himself on her. And the Reykjavik Supreme Court was unanimous in its verdict that the girl had not given consent to this activity. However, they acquitted her attacker on the grounds that she had not fought back fervently enough. Um, and this, to me, was atrocious victim blaming. Just, I mean, I was speechless uh, and I thought I cannot uh, let this go un unaddressed. So... I decided to write an open letter to the papers condemning this verdict and, and pointing out that we cannot build a society on this kind of, of thinking. <laughs> so I sat down by the computer and hammered away. And by the time that I looked up and I felt that I had, you know, spoken my mind, the cursor on the screen blinked on page 19. And I thought <laughs> there is no paper in the world that's long enough for everything I have to say. So I had to make, make a decision right there. What do I do with this? Do I stow this away in some drawer and try to move on with my life? Or do I see where this takes me if I just give this bird a pair of wings? And I decided on the latter. And what happened is that this letter morphed into a quest and a search for understanding where sexual violence stands in Iceland at the time. Like, what is the state of affairs? So I interviewed hundreds of survivors, psychologists, doctors, policemen, people that work in the front line in this issue. And it ended up being a 300-page book. And overnight, it sort of elevated my career from being this chain-spoking, thespian playwright to becoming one of the most respected experts on sexual violence in the country. And it truly catapulted my career. 
So after that, I found myself on government committees. I found myself addressing people at the United Nations headquarters. I've been very involved with this issue. I became the chairwoman of a women's shelter in Iceland. And I've been doing educational material for the Icelandic government, trying to reinvent the approach to sexual education in Icelandic elementary schools, just to name a few yeah. of the of the projects that kind of sprung from this this book, which was kind of a primal scream in many ways for me. But it also forced me to take a step out of my silence. I remember that critical decision. Am I going to include my own story in this book or not? And believe me, it's not, it was not an easy decision at my publishers. I had editors saying, no, 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 do not do that because then you will be undermined. You will be attacked and you'll be criticized for being one of those hysterical victims that is just holding a grudge. You can't possibly be taken seriously. But my own voice was telling me, you can't preach against silence and stay silent yourself. That is, that would be such a big betrayal, an act of hypocrisy that I would not be able to live with myself. So I did decide to risk, risk the judgment and risk being written off. But um, I went forth with my story without naming my perpetrator. I basically described the course of events, but um, left his name out of it and identifiable information. And I'm so glad to be able to sit here and say that it did not negatively impact my profile. And um, it was never once used against me. And I hope that that will be true for more people uh, that choose to to go public with their stories, that it will not be used as as ammunition, because it certainly shouldn't be. I mean, it's very interesting the, the that kind of decision because I'm, you know, that that whole worry that that identity as a survivor might kind of become the only part of the way you were seen, rather than a multifaceted person who has done many of those things. And it's very interesting to see that the response didn't justify that. That people did take you seriously and and did kind of that you became an expert in this area. I'm interested in finding out a little bit more about the work that you did in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, you did a, you did a lot of talking to students, mm-hmm. working on issues around consent and sexual violence. What did you find about young people today in the course of having those conversations and, and talking to kids? Do you feel that things like internet pornography or the way children are exposed to violence in different ways because of digital culture, does that make things more difficult for young people today? What an excellent question. Thank you. Yes, I think I think that kids today are getting very mixed messages. Absolutely. And I think that unfortunately, a lot of them are getting their first ideas about sex and intimacy from sources like online pornography, which is a very skewed image oftentimes. And unfortunately, a lot of pornography today blurs a very necessary vital boundary between consent and violence, basically, sex and violence. So I think a lot of work has to be done to raise awareness and make children understand fully what it is to set a boundary and what it is to respect a boundary. Because they're certainly not getting clear messages about that from popular culture today. But um, I've learned so much. Every every student that I've talked to has, has given me something. 
And in the most recent years, I've focused my efforts on what's known as revenge pornography or non-consensual pornography. And it refers to the distribution of sexually explicit images without the photographed individual's consent. And I think this is a huge area of concern because we're seeing kids getting smart devices at a younger and younger age. So they're getting tablets, they're getting smartphones, and these are devices that are connected to the internet 24-7. They all have a built-in camera. So when, you, when you're not mature, when you're in, very impulsive, as is typical for children, then all it takes is, is that split second, that decision to put something out on the internet that can never be reversed. So it alarms me how little is being done to educate children about that area, because I think that that's essentially a form of sexual violence. It's digital sexual violence, but it is a form of invasion into someone's sexual life to expose them this way. What do you think we can do about that? A lot of it has to do with education, I think. A lot of it has to do with teaching them uh, image literacy, but also respect, uh, respect for each other. I would never, ever in my life dream of saying that so the solution would be to teach girls not to take nude photos, for example, which is like one of the more common tropes that you hear. But you know, it's I a will digital say version of miniskirts. Exactly. Thank you. That's what I've always said. Saying to a victim of non-consensual pornography that she shouldn't have taken that nude photo is like saying to a victim of rape that she shouldn't have worn that short skirt. It's the same kind of thinking behind it that sort of makes them responsible through their sexual expression for an act of of abuse or violence. So I think a lot of it has to do with um, teaching them how to be responsible in their communication online. And we have to, we, the older generations, we have to come to accept that sexual expression online and digitally has become a part of their behavior, their sexual behavior. It's a part of being a teenager today. It's where they flirt. It's where some of their first relationships um, spark. So there is no denying that the online sphere has become a venue for romance and, and sexual activity. Whatever the form has been, that's always been blamed for, you know, whether it was rock and roll or, or iPhones and iPads, um, blaming the, the form doesn't, right, doesn't, but doesn't it's, do much. Exactly. But it's the same principle with yeah. any type of sexual violence the responsibility is always with the perpetrator, with the yeah. person that yeah. overstepped that boundary and didn't respect another person's consent or yeah. their right yeah. to, to consent or not. You know, With the book South of Forgiveness, you've really chosen to break that silence. Um, you and Tom have chosen to break that silence around what happened and around issues of sexual violence and really make a case for talking about these things very publicly and in a, in a different way, why was it important for you to do this? Because I don't think I'd be alive if I hadn't. It was really one of those things that I think would have been the end of me uh, if I would have nurtured this vicious cycle where I kept uh, pushing myself to the edge and numbing myself and um, fleeing my past. It wasn't constructive. So what happened is... In 2005, I was on the brink of a nervous breakdown because 
I had internalized some of these victim blaming notions that I was somehow to blame, for example, through my bad judgment, which is like a ridiculous thing to even say now that I know better. But of course, you can't see on the outside who's going to be abusive. Of course not. But um, I thought that my judgment had failed me because I had not been able to preempt this violence that I was subjected to. And this led to me doubting everything. So at that point in my life, I was doubting my career choices, my romantic choices, uh, my self-worth. So it was really a, a bad place. And I had a fight, one of many, because this was obviously causing tension in all my relationships. And I had a fight and I was blinded with tears and I stormed out of the door, got in the car, just wanted to drive somewhere, be alone. And I wandered into this cafe that I normally never go to. And I had a notebook in my bag. And as I've said before, I had a nervous habit. I had to doodle. I had to do something. But that day, a letter streamed out of my pen. And it was a letter to Tom, who had abused me, my first boyfriend. And it was a detailed account of the violence that he subjected me to. And it was a surprise. I did not foresee this. He had not been on my mind, but it was like something that broke through the surface. It was something that had to come out. So, um, I was faced with yet another decision. What do I do with this? And I decided to type it into my computer when I got home. And this was uncharted territory because normally experts in the field of sexual violence wouldn't recommend a confrontation. And I don't either, because I think the, the only thing that I recommend for any survivor of abuse is to always put their safety first. Mm -hmm. But for me at that point in time, I was as safe as you can be. I was literally on the other side of the planet from my abuser. And the written word is a very protected space. Nobody can cut you off. Nobody can verbally abuse you. It's, um, it's your solo scene. It's your monologue if I speak like a playwright. So I thought, if I send this to him, what can I expect? And I went through it in my head and I thought, you know, he's probably not going to answer. I think that's the most logical outcome because who would want to own up to this, you know? And the second option I thought I would be faced with was a, a negative response that he would, you know, berate me or accuse me of misremembering things or flat out call me a liar. The only thing that I didn't prepare for was the response that I then got, which was a, a typed confession from, from Tom who had, as it turns out, been in a weirdly mirrored life. I mean, he had been trying to outrun his past as well with uncannily similar methods at, at some points with uh, self-harming behavior, destructive behavior, alcohol abuse, etc. Obviously coming at it from the other end of the scale, but mirroring behavior in, in some ways. But um, he wholeheartedly owned up to his actions, which surprised me to no end. And that's when the million dollar question formed in my mind, which I think is very typical for people that have been betrayed in this way. And it's why, why did you do this to me? What were you thinking? And when I eyed that opportunity, I now have a, a platform to, to pose that question that's been searing in my mind, that's been haunting my dreams. I seized it. So 
I posed that question and he tried his best to answer and that sparked more questions and it sparked a dialogue that stretched out over eight years. And it was never once easy. There were gutting confessions in there. There were things that were extremely hard to read, extremely hard to write, but necessary to get out of the system, uh, at least for me. And it was never an intimacy. Uh, we didn't share details from our lives. We weren't pen pals. You know, it wasn't friendly. It was highly an analytical. And we made sure to only stay on track and dissect that night and the consequences that it had had for our lives. And um, I think I had a deep-seated need to understand because for me, the only kind of pain that's unbearable is the pain that you can't reason with. It's the pain that you don't understand. So the more that I could understand, the easier it was for me to, to let go, not only of the self-blame, but of the anger and of the turmoil and find Again, that nurturing inner stillness, that silence that where I didn't feel threatened, where I didn't have to fill it with something concrete. So that was the gift I gave myself. And the title may wrongfully suggest that forgiveness was something meant for Tom. It was never meant for Tom. It was an act of self-interest. It allowed me to, to move on. has the reaction to the book been? This process that you went through, not over those eight years, but then of meeting together in South Africa, of actually being face to face and talking through these things and coming to a sense of reconciliation with what had happened and with the past and in, in, a, in a way that left you able to, to go on with your lives. What has been the response that you've had both to your decisions to tell the story and the way that you've done so. It may seem strange to some people that after eight years of analyzing something, I would still feel that I had something left unsaid. <laughs> um, and I, I truly understand how that would seem incomprehensible to someone. But here's the thing. The written word is still silent. And giving voice to something can be extremely empowering. And, and hearing something voiced is entirely different from hearing it or seeing it written out. And I realized after eight years of writing back and forth, irregularly though, there were points where the correspondence was broken off by me because I didn't feel that it was being helpful for me. And I certainly didn't owe Tom anything. We were not each other's therapists in any way, so there was no obligation. But... um. After the eight years where we had done a lot of writing that certainly was helpful, I realized that I wasn't able to fully let go. And um, upon thinking about it, that was, that was the answer that I found. It didn't resonate with my heart on paper. Uh, this had cut too deeply into the core of who I was to be finalized in an email to a Hotmail account. You know, it just, it didn't really compute. So it, it wasn't real. It, yeah, exactly. It didn't give me the sense of closure that I so, so longed for. So I decided to propose the idea that we'd face our past once and for all in person and meet in the middle. And South Africa turned out to be exactly smack in the middle between Australia and 
and Iceland. And needless to say, my family thought this was quite the crazy idea and um, naturally worried for me and, and about me on this journey. But I have to also say that they came around to the idea and realized how important I felt it was to to give myself the gift of stop looking across my shoulder. So I had their wholehearted support when I did undertake this journey. And we spent a week in Cape Town, uh, Tom and I, to kind of talk through our lives because I had been so stringently looking at this one night and dissecting it for eight years. But the thing is, violence isn't bred in a vacuum. Violence is a result of influences and choices and lots of twists and turns. So I longed for a bigger picture and I wanted to know what had shaped the people that met that night at the Christmas dance. Uh, what were they thinking and who did they become after this shattering what was event? the impact of that whole thing? Exactly. And again, understanding for me, for my sake, because it wasn't something I was extending to Tom as a, as a kindness. Again, I owed him nothing. Uh, so it was very much a journey of, I guess, self-discovery, but also facing fear. And for me, it was important to prove to myself that the fear that my past had, had birthed would not control me or my actions so that it was a sort of personal victory as well to step outside of that and liberate myself from that and, and really look it in the eye. Mm-hmm. But you're right. After that, a lot of um, water has gone under the bridge after that. And um, now we've come to the decision to, to go public with, with this highly personal story, which is by no means set forth as a guidebook or a set of recommendations. Not at all. It's only a personal account and it will never be anything more than that. But the reason why we chose to do so is um, layered. For me, it's important to shift the focus. We've had a public discourse that's been focusing on the survivor. We've been picking apart the survivor's accounts. We've been staring at what they wear, where they went, what they drank, what their sexual history was. And to some extent, as frustrating as it is, I understand it. Because we've only had their accounts. Because in the public discourse in the last few years, the only people discussing their experiences of violence are the survivors. So we have this one-sided kind of narrative. And I think it contributes to victim-blaming culture. Because we tend to attach the blame to the person who had the short skirt on, who had drank too much, who was in a bad neighborhood or what you may call it, as opposed to attaching it to the person that it truthfully belongs to, which is the perpetrator. But if we never have them involved in any shape or form, then it's hard to to even begin. So we're hoping that by Tom stepping up and, and owning his his actions and taking responsibility for them, we will have a grounds to talk about perpetrators, their actions, their way of thinking, their decisions, because ultimately that's where the core lies. And that's where ultimately the why of this whole situation that you were looking for is to be found. I mean, it's fascinating hearing you talk about it. It makes you realise how unusual this is, this, this whole debunking of the notion of 
uh, rapist as a dangerous stranger in a dark alley. So showing what is much more the pattern of, of rape mm-hmm. and taking it out of the box where it's, you know, the response to vi- sexual violence is criminalisation, actually taking, making dialogue and discussion of these issues, which we don't talk about. I think criminalization is extremely important. Of course. And I celebrate the fact that, you know, all non-consensual sexual activity is outlawed and it should be. And I'm glad to know that there is a formal course of action that people can take if they are violated or abused. But so many cases fall through the cracks of that system, unfortunately. And I am a, a living proof of that, that Unfortunately, in my case, it was never a possibility. And I've longed for there to then be something else that we can do. A discussion we can have, a course of action we can take. And again, I am not prescriptive and I'm not recommending my my way of healing from my trauma. But I do want to state that that is every survivor's right to find their way. There is no wrong way and there is no right way to react to a traumatic event like violence, something that uproots your entire worldview on people, on love, on trust. You have a right to heal from that in a way that feels safe and good for you. And people may not understand why you uh, take the, the path that you feel is right for you, but that is still something you're entitled to. And I just want to support everyone who's on some kind of, um, healing path or, or path to recovery to, to give themselves full license to do whatever they feel is necessary to feel better. And to encourage others to respect their choices. Exactly. Exactly. There are people um, willing to tell us everything that we've done wrong from the start, you know, that we wore the wrong thing and we drank the wrong drink. And then when we were assaulted, we didn't scream loud enough or we didn't fight back hard enough and then afterwards we clearly shouldn't have reacted in the way that we did we should we shouldn't have showered we should have gone to the police and in reality yes of course there is an ideal course of action that you know would probably result in a higher likelihood of of a case for example being one in court however in reality most of us that go through a traumatic experience of this nature have a very messy experience. It's not clean cut. We blame ourselves. We numb ourselves. We continue to see our abusers because facing the past is too difficult. Yeah, we lash out in destructive ways as opposed to um, taking the course that to everyone else may seem the most logical one. But because it is an illogical world and violence is an illogical thing to have happen to you, um, it's only natural at a young age. Exactly. It's yeah. only natural that yeah. the ways to respond would be messy and, and maybe even very hard to comprehend for other people. And in many ways, having this opening up this conversation is going to make it easier for people to acknowledge, make their own choices, understand some of the issues and take the right path for them. I'm hoping that one of the things that maybe sharing our story will achieve is, as you named earlier, debunking the myth that it has to be this demonized um, perpetrator. It could be basically someone you know and trust and love. That's one thing that I, th- I feel is important. 
And another thing that I really hope that sharing our story will achieve is that the survivors that have a story like mine, where there wasn't gratuitous violence, there wasn't a gun to the head, there wasn't slaps and kicks and punches, more the, and I'm air quoting now, but more the like mundane experiences of violence. I've unfortunately met so many survivors that feel that they don't have a right to their pain because it wasn't this sensationalized, um, violent episode that you would see on CSI or, or in the films or, or something. But um, they have every bit as much of a right to heal from, from their experience, and it's every bit as much of a trauma and a, a violence of their rights, especially if it's someone that you know, it cuts even deeper. So I'm hoping that they will feel emboldened and entitled to, to claim the word for themselves, to name their experiences for what they are. Tordis Elva, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. It's been wonderful to hear your story. The pleasure was mine, thank you. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program. Our show is hosted by me, Anne Mossop, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hearway. We're recorded by Mark Pickles, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.